Well, now I hope that your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And we're going to start reading right there, okay? So it says this, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that verse right there, verse three, is where we are gonna kind of hone in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, of all the things that Jesus could have said to begin his famous Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably the most famous sermon in all religious literature. But of all the things that Jesus could have possibly said, he said this first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Up until this moment, Jesus had been traveling around the region of Galilee and he had been giving himself to the the least and the last and the lost of society. He had been performing, as we just read in verses 23 through 25, he'd been performing many signs and wonders among the sick, among the broken. He was healing every one of their diseases and afflictions, and he had been preaching the good news of forgiveness for those who repent of their sin. The kingdom of heaven that we see Jesus just unleashing in this passage is, 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 is wonderful. And the men and women and children of Israel had never before witnessed such a display of truth and love. And as a result, we see that these huge crowds had formed around Jesus and his disciples. If you're unfamiliar with the word disciple, it's, it's a close follower, or a committed learner of Jesus. It seemed, though, that with these crowds, everyone on earth wanted to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven the kingdom that Jesus had brought with him from from heaven to earth to inaugurate in this passage, and he's demonstrating it. And so Matthew, uh, Matthew's an eyewitness. He's one of Jesus's disciples, and he's the one that's writing all of this down for us to read. In verse one, chapter five, he records that Jesus, after seeing the eager, curious crowds, he he kind of retreats up the mountainside to get a little elbow room, a little, little breathing room, and, and also to get a little elevation because he's going to sit down to teach. And this was the rabbinic custom. This is the, this is the, the, the way rabbis in uh, Jerusalem and in the area used to teach. They would sit, and like good disciples, all of their disciples would come around them, which is exactly what we see happening And so he's going to preach to his disciples and the crowds that are around what's expected of those who truly wish to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is really the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is about to reveal to his disciples and to the crowds and to us subsequently, now that we're reading it, how a citizen of his kingdom ought to think. If everybody's wanting to be a citizen of his kingdom because it's so marvelous and wonderful, he's about to teach them how a citizen in his kingdom ought to act, how a citizen of his kingdom ought to live their life. Essentially, this is really the mission statement of the Sermon on the Mount. It's that for those who truly wish to be Christians, Jesus is showing them what that looks like. In the sermon, he he confronts all sorts of, of major heart issues, anger and lust and deceitfulness and revenge and greed He preaches about loving our enemies and and serving the poor. He preaches about prayer and fasting and about bearing righteous fruit in all of our conduct all the day long. He essentially lays out the Christian's guide to life. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing he says, so perplexing, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are them. Because the kingdom of heaven that I'm unfolding and unleashing, it belongs to them. Now, many pastors and scholars have actually argued that this one verse, verse three, is is essentially a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Everything that's expected of those who want and wish to follow Christ is wrapped up into this one verse. Uh, Welch preacher and and theologian, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he he once preached this. It is not surprising that this is the first statement out of Jesus' mouth because it is obviously the key to all that follows it. Poverty of spirit is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven such that all other characteristics of the Christian are in a sense a result of this one. Dr. Lloyd-Jones continues soberingly that there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from being poor in spirit and there is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. So if this is true, we can easily see why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with this verse, and it also provides us with like, with like major motivation for unpacking what it actually means, which is what we get to do now. And so if you're a note taker, I think it's printed in the bulletin, but, uh, but the, the most profound sermon title I could possibly come up with is Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit. So I spent hours praying over, no, I didn't. So blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're gonna look at three things. We're gonna ask three questions. Number one, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, let's just play simple and obvious. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Number two, why is it blessed? Maybe rephrased, why is it good news that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit? And number three, How might we become poor in spirit? That is what we're going to, those three questions are what we are going to investigate now. Let's look at number one. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, to be clear, being poor in spirit is not the same as being poor financially with material wealth. 
while it is true that Jesus was poor, he identified most of the time with the poor and he also taught at like seriously great length about the dangers of seeking security from riches. While all of those things are true, material wealth is not the concern here in verse 3. This is where a plain interpretation of the text is critical. Jesus is clearly speaking about spiritual poverty. He would not have added in spirit if that weren't the case. And the spiritual poverty that we're looking at right, right here is the kind of spiritual poverty that's like, it's beautifully illustrated in the, in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 6. And in that chapter, we see the prophet Isaiah, arguably the most righteous man in all of Israel at that time, we see that he's given a vision of God. He sees the Lord. It says high and lifted up and the train of his robe, the, the fabric of his robe, of the Lord's robe, filled the temple. We're talking this huge vision. And he also saw these seraphim, these angelic hosts, these angelic creatures all circled around the throne, one crying out to the next, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory. Well, the foundations of the room begin to shake as it fills with smoke. And as Isaiah gazed upon the utter perfection and utter righteousness and holiness of God, he becomes fearfully, woefully aware of his imperfections and his sin. He falls flat on his face and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Basically, kill me. My eyes have seen the Lord. Just a glimpse into God's perfect righteousness and the overwhelming sense of lostness brings the most righteous man in Israel to the floor. Suddenly he sees more clearly than ever the sickness of his own sinful heart, the uncleanliness of his sinful lips. He sees more clearly than ever that because of his sin that he has willfully engaged in, he is merely a beggar in the king's courts. He has absolutely nothing of spiritual worth to offer God, and he has absolutely nothing to bring to God but this one thing, need. He brought one thing before the Lord, simple need. Woe is me. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It is to see God in his perfection and then it is to recognize that because of our sin, we are utterly, spiritually bankrupt before him. It is to have no boast. It is to have no claim to his favor. Look what I've done. Now you owe me. It's nothing of the sort. It is to be brought to our knees as beggars. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Isaiah 
was brought to his knees by a vision, but Jesus intends with the Sermon on the Mount to bring us to our knees by this sermon, so to speak. And this is precisely the goal, the end game of the Sermon on the Mount, to bring us to a surrendered awareness of our need for him. That's, that's its end game. That's the goal. Jesus clearly, okay, if we were to stop right now, and if we were to read through, excuse me, <clears throat> if we were to read through the sermon in its entirety, it spans nearly three chapters, we would quickly see that what's expected of those who wish to follow Christ, what's expected of those who call themselves Christians, is nothing less than perfection. Nothing less. Jesus says plainly in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <clears throat> Theologian R.T. France once commented, he said, the Sermon on the Mount is indeed intended as a guide to life, but only for those who are committed to the kingdom of heaven. And even they will always find that its reach exceeds their grasp. The demands of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, do not easily translate into a simple, practical, moral, day-to-day -day sort of thing because the standard that is set in this sermon, he says, is nothing less than being like God himself. It's nothing less than perfection. And, and it honestly shouldn't surprise us it shouldn't surprise us that the perfect, righteous, holy king of heaven requires perfect, righteous, holy citizens of heaven. I mean, after all, that's why he created us in the first place, that we would be like him. Church, do we understand that he did not need us, but he created us out of his own abundance in order to share with us the love and joy and completion that already existed from eternity within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he created us that we would reflect, that we would, that we would reflect his holiness and his righteousness upon the earth. This is why we were made. But when sin entered the world through our disobedience, through Adam's and Eve's, our first human parents, and through yours and through mine. When sin entered the world through our disobedience, it marred our ability to rightly reflect his righteousness. We could no longer do it. The Bible teaches that because we've all sinned against God, we all now fall short of God's glorious standard the standard put forth in the Sermon on the Mount. Because each of us in our own way, church, at one point in time or another, each of us in our own way decided that we would make better gods than the one true God. And essentially, he gave us over to exactly what we wanted, which was independence from him. This is what it says in Romans 1. And the moment that he gave us over to our desire of independence, we didn't want to be held down by God, the moment he did that was the moment that we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil 
and covetousness and malice. And ever since, our, wor- our world has been filled with envy and murder and strife and deceit and slander and hatred, Romans 1 lists, and foolishness and faithlessness. And I'm going to add every other vile thing that we see on the nightly news. It's a result of our desire for independence from the one who created us. It's us being our own gods. But the standard of perfection, the standard way of living that Jesus puts forth in the Sermon on the Mount is still nothing new. It's what's been expected of us since the very moment he created us. He's not not saying anything new, which is why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 130, centuries before Jesus was even on the planet. He said, if you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist sees the difference of what we were created for and where we've deviated. See, like the psalmist, when we see the level of perfection that's required of citizens of heaven, we should be emptied of every whim of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-assurance. I mean, if the prophet Isaiah, who is head and shoulders more righteous than I, was more righteous than I, if he could not stand in front of the Lord, I would be crushed. Oh, Lord, who could stand? This, again, is what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, let's encourage ourselves for a moment because this is intense. How is this blessed? Like, how is this good news to be poor in spirit in this manner? After all, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word, blessed, the Latin root word for blessed is beatus. It's where we get the word beatitudes. So the beatitudes, the eight kingdom statements that we are kind of drawing from here with verse three, have nothing to do necessarily with attitude, it has everything to do with, with heart, but that's a, that's a, that joke fell flat. So long story short, long story short, beatus could also be translated as happy. Like it's a happy situation to be poor in spirit. It's a good thing. This is good news. How is that true? Number two, why is it good news that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit? Throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, the phrase kingdom of heaven is often used to describe salvation and forgiveness of sin and newness of life and nearness to Jesus. Therefore, it is the poor in spirit who will receive forgiveness, who will receive salvation, who will receive nearness to Jesus everlasting. Jesus says in Matthew 9 that he did not come to earth to save those who think they're already well. But instead, he came to save those who know they're sick. This is the difference between richness of spirit and poorness of spirit. Those who are doing just fine on their own, 
earning their way up the ladder of righteousness? Richness in spirit. But by definition, church, by definition, grace can only be given to those who know they don't deserve it. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor. Why else do we think that Jesus was constantly surrounded by notorious sinners, murderous zealots, prostitutes? We've got tax collectors and thieves. Why is this the case? Here's the reason. Because these people knew they had nothing to bring to him. And they didn't pretend to. They didn't try to clean themselves up before they came into his presence. They were honest and vulnerable and forthright. All the things that I desire to be in a community of believers. And I hope that you would echo that. The truth is that maybe you've heard the the popular saying, I think it's a One Republic song. I said this in the last gathering and I don't know if it is or not, but there's a song called Preacher and, and in it they say, God only helps those who learn to help themselves. And that's the gospel according to someone who doesn't know the gospel, uh, plainly. Uh, Because the truth is, and the gospel truth is, God can only help those who know they cannot help themselves. That's how it works. Theirs is the kingdom. For the prostitutes and and the murderous zealots and those who know I am a sinner, theirs is forgiveness and healing and newness of life. The spirit that is poor is the spirit that is redeemable. And may I propose to you now why this is really, really, really good news. Because when Jesus goes on in the sermon, if you've ever read through it, when he goes on to preach that anger and murder are the exact same thing, that if any of us has ever harbored anger in our hearts against a brother or sister, that it's like we've committed murder. When Jesus goes on to preach that lust and adultery are the same thing, that if any of us has ever entertained lewd thoughts of someone else, it is as if we were guilty of adultery itself, which was stonable in the Old Testament days. And when Jesus goes on to preach that if our, maybe this is a little bit more close to home, if our words and commitments have ever returned void, that is, If any of us in this room has ever said we would do something that we didn't follow through on, that our yes wasn't yes, it is as if we've broken a vow to the Lord himself. This is how seriously heart level the Sermon on the Mount is. When we get to that, when we read those passages, we're going to start feeling quite depraved. We're going to start feeling the sense of depth of our sin. When we start to experience the poverty of spirit, this is where it turns into good news. We're going to be overjoyed that Jesus started the whole sermon in verse 3 by saying, blessed are are the poor in spirit, the ones who know that they can't live up to all of this that I've just said. It's really good news that he starts his sermon with this phrase. And if you're like me, which I'm a, I'm a Pharisee of the highest order, super concerned about what people think of me, wanting to put on a pious, holy front under, underneath the metaphorical light, that's me just confessing. If you're like me, it means this. Because the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, we 
can stop treating the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Scripture like some sort of cosmic checklist on our way to self-improvement. The purpose of the sermon is to reveal the sickness of my heart and my need for a healer. It is not a platform for me to earn merit badges. If we could do this on our own, church, if we could, if we could live this way on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. And Paul would lose his mind if we even said that. See, wanting to be our own gods got us into this mess to begin with, but wanting to be our own saviors has prevented many professed Christians from actually coming to Christ and trusting that his atoning work on the cross, his shed blood was enough. There's a reason why he said with utter finality, it is finished. There's nothing left to prove or earn. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, I and you, we don't have to put on a show of outward righteousness. We don't have to prove anything to anyone. We can simply begin each day in scripture and in prayer. We can love the people in our community groups. We can serve our family and friends and neighbors and nations and enemies not because we're trying to earn points, but because we trust that Jesus has already earned all the points that we need to be justified. Now we can do all of these things, not to earn, but to simply worship and celebrate. It's been done. It's been done. Our account has been paid and filled. Because of all the people who ever walked the earth, the only one who lived in perfect step with what the Sermon on the Mount preaches is Jesus himself. Only he was truly poor in spirit. Only he truly and fully relied on the Father. We see this in Gethsemane. Only he lived the sinless, righteous life that we could not. And although he never sinned, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he, he became our sin literally became it and he died on a cross that we deserve so that we could become the righteousness of God it could be all of his medals pinned to our chest of perfect obedience and we could be given the favor of God that we didn't deserve this is the gospel dudes this is good 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 news and after he became our sin and was punished punished for all of our broken promises and sexual immorality and lust and greed and richness of spirit, he rose to life and he now stands at the right hand of the Father beckoning us to come. How might we become poor in spirit? Because the word still stands true. There's no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. How might we become poor in spirit? And theologically speaking, we can't make ourselves poor in spirit. This is a work of miraculous grace that begins with the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit when he goes into a heart and he makes it new. He makes it beat afresh. Then and only then, as the Lord himself begins to remove the scales from our eyes, are we able to actually see 
the effect that sin has had on us. Only then are we able to recognize his mercy. And so we're gonna pray at the end of the service that this happens because it's a gift of God. And we're gonna trust, and we're gonna hope, and we're gonna believe. But there are a few things in closing that I wanna share that will help us to encourage our hearts in the direction of poverty of spirit, okay? In the direction. Number one, we need to be aware of any boast we feel we might have before God. See, the opposite of poorness of spirit is richness of spirit. And while none of us would probably describe ourselves as such, I don't think anyone here is beyond trying to earn their salvation from God. So what this kind of looks like in my life is that if I've had a really, really good week in the Word and prayer time has been great and got to pray with a guy on the street, this, that, and the other, I kind of start to feel a little bit like, hmm, like I'm going to lift my hands in worship today. I'm feeling pretty near to the throne. I'm, I'm feeling accepted and kind of worthy and kind of righteous. And on the converse end of that, on the other end of that coin, if I've had a, just a disparaging week, I haven't Really, my prayer time has just been dismal and, and I haven't really read and I'm arguing with my wife. I might come in here and be apt to think like, well, I, I, I can't possibly raise my hands and engage. I haven't, I haven't been good. Both of these errors we are prone to in, in being rich in spirit in our mindset. Does that make sense? We need to be aware of the things that we're actually doing that we might hold on to as a boast. I came early and unlocked the church and I folded all the bulletins and the Lord just, I'm his favorite. <laughs> Number two, the second thing to consider that helps position us in a direction of spiritual poverty. Again, we can't make ourselves poor, but we can, we can set ourselves up to, to think and act in this sort of way is to set up daily rhythms that encourage spiritual poverty. I'll explain that. The Apostle Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter two, he says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but he immediately adds, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what this means is simply this, the kingdom of heaven isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We are with faith-fueled effort to exert ourselves in an effort of holiness. We are to set up rhythms of discipline, of being up in the morning in the word. The first time I preached here, that was what I got to share about. Being up early in the morning in prayer before him, setting ourselves up before him to soften us, to make us poor. We get to do this, and it does require effort, but it's faith-fueled, believing that God will reward our rhythms and doing it day in and day out. There's a quote from a poet named Annie Dillard, and she once said that how you, how you let's see, how you spend your day is how you live your life. Because the days add up so quickly. And so if we could just get into a rhythm today and then do it the next day and then do it the next day, sooner or later we see that we've spent our entire lives in a rhythm of putting ourselves in a spot to be softened by the Lord. 
And when we get into these rhythms of scripture and intentional community, like intentional community where the people who are gonna be in our uh, community group, hold on to your hats because <laughs> uh, my children are crazy. And so anyways, um, when we get in a community together, it's this idea of being intentional in inviting each other to please call out evidences of richness of spirit in me. Please show me when it looks like I'm boasting. Please bring it to my attention because it's for my sanctification. And we can pray together today and in community, Psalm 139, when King David just simply says, God, reveal any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The last thing to consider, I've kind of rambled, I, I apologize. God, I'm already comfortable in front of you guys. This is, this is super. So the last thing to consider that helps us to position ourselves in a direction of spiritual poverty is simply to stay to stare at Jesus. I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, how he, he says it. When asked what, you know, how to become poor in spirit, he says, it is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just a tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is to be poor in spirit. And the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God, to, to read his book, to read his law, to look at what he expects from us and then to contemplate standing before him. It's also to look at our Lord Jesus and to view him as we see him in the gospels. And the more we do that, the more we shall understand the reaction of the apostles when they were looking at him and witnessed something amazing he'd just done. And they simply say, Lord, in increase our faith. Help us to believe everything we've just seen. Lloyd-Jones continues, look at him. And the more we look at him, the more hopeless we shall feel by ourselves and the more we shall become poor in spirit. Look at him and keep looking at him. Look at the saints. Look at those around you who have been most filled with the spirit and used and then look back at him. And then you will have nothing to do to yourself because it will already be done. You cannot truly look at him without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness, and then you can simply say to him with your arms lifted, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. God the Father, I thank you so much for my own soul and on behalf of the souls here in this place for your ransoming rescue effort that you accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, who took a cross of sin that I deserved. He was buried in a tomb that had my name on it and he raised to life and he pardoned my guilt when I came and he called, he called and said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. See forgiveness and you shall find it. Thank you for the gospel news that he became sin who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. Holy Spirit, we implore you. We ask by your great mercy and power that you would make every heart in this room poor, that you would make every spirit in this room impoverished, 
that we would see the emptiness of our efforts to uh, perfect ourselves and that we would run to the cross and receive the fullness of Jesus imparted to us. We ask this for every person in the room and we thank you, God, that you're faithful to hear because of the completed work of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.